Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're having a great day. Our mission here at Open Your Eyes is to help all of us open our eyes a bit more to the possibilities and realities all around us. And each week, we try to bring messages to this podcast that will help you in real and practical ways to live a happier life. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. Now, if this podcast inspires you, please share it with a friend. That's how we can fulfill our mission a bit more to more people. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about those awkward and inevitable flops we all experience in life. You know, just a few weeks ago, history was made in track and field when the World Athletic Championships were held for the first time on U.S. soil. In 1976, in response to the Olympic Games dropping the 50-kilometer walk from the Olympic Games, the IAAF started the World Championships. The World Track and Field Championships are held every other year, with the last two being held in Doha and London. Well, this year, the World Championships came to Eugene, Oregon, to the historic Hayward Field. Hayward Field is one of my favorite places. I've been there several times, and when you walk into the field, you can just feel the spirit of the place. It's known to be one of the fastest tracks in the world. And not only is the track close to sea level, but the track itself is designed to give runners a lift. In 1982, Mary Decker broke the women's 5,000-meter record at Hayward Field in June, then returned one month later and broke the women's 10,000-meter record. The decathlon world record has been broken more often at Hayward Field than any other venue in the world, including in 2012 by Ashton Eaton. Now, surprisingly, some world records have stood in track and field for years. The women's 800-meter race record has stood since 1983. Can you imagine? For almost 40 years, no runner's been able to break the record. Now, you would think, with improved training and runner development, that a woman would be able to break a 40-year-old record. But no, it hasn't happened. Now, I believe a thing Mo, an American runner, will soon break that record, but we'll see. Other longstanding records include the men's long jump set by Mike Powell in 1991. He jumped over 29 feet. But there's one world record that is called the unbreakable record. It's so incredible that no one believes anyone will ever come close again. It's in the men's high jump, and the record was set by a Cuban high jumper named Javier Sotomayor in 1993. He jumped over eight feet. Now, to give that perspective, just look at the door in your house. Most doors are at six feet, eight inches, and nowadays many houses have doors that are eight feet tall. But imagine jumping 16 inches taller than the door in your house. Seems impossible, doesn't it? But the interesting thing is this, Javier would have never jumped eight feet without Richard. Now, not far from Hayward Field in the 1950s, Richard grew up in Medford, Oregon. His dad drove a logging truck and his mom was a teacher. And his great-grandparents were Idaho pioneers. Gotta love Idaho pioneers. Now, he was raised to use his imagination and he tried all sorts of things in his youth. He played basketball and ran track. 
but he grew to over six feet four inches tall. And as a result, he decided to try his skills at the high jump. At first, he tried the scissors method of jumping over the bar. Well, Richard had difficulty competing using the high jump techniques of the day. And in his sophomore year, he failed to even jump five feet. At the time, he was using the straddle method. And this method required you to jump over the bar facing down and lift your legs individually over the bar. And Richard couldn't do it very well. So what did he do? Well, he didn't let failure stop him. He used his imagination and thought about how to jump in a better, different way. And he started to experiment. High jump rules simply said that you needed to jump off of one foot and you had to clear the bar. And other than that, the way you jumped over the bar was up to you. Well, schools in his day started to put three-foot-high elevated mats on the other side of the bar. Now, they weren't too soft, but they did allow you to land on your side or back. So, during practice, during his junior year in high school, Richard tried something new that seemed to work. But his coaches kept forcing him back to the straddle-face-down method, but Richard kept up his experimentation. And by the time he reached his senior year in high school, he had perfected a new method of high jumping. He would run alongside the bar, jump off one foot, and with his back to the bar, reach up and put his head and shoulders over the bar, raise his back and backside so they cleared the bar, then kicked his legs upward as he passed over the bar. The genius of this jumping method, later called the Fosbury Flop, is that once your mass, your head and shoulders and chest clear the bar, the rest of you can elevate more easily. Well, with his coach's protests and the flop in action, Richard, or Dick Fosbury, earned a scholarship to Oregon State. Now, during his junior year at OSU, Dick made the 1968 U.S. Olympic team and came back from the Olympic Games in Mexico City with a gold medal and the American and Olympic records with his jump of seven feet, four and one quarter inch. And that made the flop the preferred way to high jump ever since. Dick Fosbury, a high school student, revolutionized the high jump with the Fosbury flop. Five years later, Dwight Stone would set a new record using the Fosbury flop in 1973 by jumping seven feet, six inches. And 20 years after that, a young man from Cuba would use the flop to set the unbreakable world record. Now, while you and I may never jump over a seven or eight foot high bar, or even try the high jump, we will all likely flop, or at least benefit from someone else's flop in life. That's right. We all benefit from the flops of others, and they benefit from ours. And in life, we all flop. In fact, I believe that in life, we're intended to flop. I believe that the plan for us to grow and become who we're supposed to become in this life, is organized knowing that we will flop from time to time. Now, if we look closely at the definition of the word flop, it includes slumping or falling, like how you flop into a chair or flop something onto a desk. It falls awkwardly, without elegance, the dictionary says. Trust me, I've done that several times in life. I've fallen or failed awkwardly without elegance. Another definition of flop is something that is completely unsuccessful, something that bombs after an attempt like a joke or a new movie release. They can flop, right? And here's the thing. Dick Fosbury's flop could have easily been a flop. 
could have never been the solution to setting new records, but his imagination and persistence took him to new heights. And that's the way it is with flops. He or she who can learn to flop well using their imagination can scale new heights. A few years back, J.K. Rowling, the famous author, was asked to give the commencement address at the graduation ceremony at Harvard University. And she was unsure beforehand of what she was going to say. She wanted to say something that could genuinely make a difference for these young people who were on the threshold of real life. And it caused her to think about what she would say to her 21-year-old self. And after considering her own life, she decided on two things that she wanted to share. Can you guess what those two things might be? Well, they were, first, the benefits of flops, and second, the crucial importance of imagination. Now, Rowling's own life was filled with strife. Her parents were poor. Her mother had multiple sclerosis and was often sick. Her father was angry and bitter, and she constantly fought with him. And they wanted her to pursue a vocation. But all she ever wanted to do was write novels. She had always planned to attend Oxford, but in response to her application to Oxford, all she received was a letter of denial, a flop, a devastating blow. So she decided to study French and classics at the University of Exeter. And after graduation, she found work as a researcher at Amnesty International. Then another devastating blow. Her mother died. And her mother's death affected her deeply. Then another flop or blow, a breakup with her boyfriend. And to deal with this flop, she escaped to Portugal to teach English. There she met a man, they fell in love and were married, and they had a child together, a daughter. But soon he turned abusive, and in 1993, after one especially bad night, in which he dragged her out of their home, slapping her into submission in the street, she took her daughter and fled. And she went to live with her sister in Edinburgh, Scotland. Seven years after graduating from college, years wasted with no progress towards her dream, she said to herself, I am the biggest failure I know. Her marriage had failed. She was jobless. She was a single mother, and her dreams were nowhere in sight. She signed up for welfare benefits. She suffered from deep depression and even contemplated suicide. Finally, she said, I stopped pretending I was anything other than what I was, and I determined more than I had ever determined, to do what I was meant to do, to write. I finally knew inside I was a writer. I was alive. I had a beautiful daughter and a typewriter. And she always knew she could do it. But for whatever reason, it was then that she decided that she'd do it. So each day, she would walk her baby in the stroller to help her sleep, stop and write in the local cafe. First, she'd write the chapters in longhand on a notepad, then at home, she'd type them on a typewriter. Then she'd sneak into the local college library and type them into the computer. For two years, she labored day after day and finally finished her story. The book was submitted to 12 publishing houses. All 12 turned her down. After more than a year of knocking on doors, an independent publisher in London, who really didn't like the book, agreed to purchase it after giving it to his daughter to read because she loved it. And soon, a series of providential moves brought her Harry Potter novels to the world and the lives of millions of readers and of J.K. Rowling would change. Now, Rowling, after telling her story to the Harvard grads, 
said this, and you and I should listen in because it just may be what you need to hear today. She said, you might not fail or flop on the same scale as I did, but some failure in life is inevitable. It is impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all. Failure gave me an inner security and taught me the things about myself that I could have learned no other way. Life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. And the humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. So however you came to this podcast today, if you came here with a string of recent successes or a few flops or feeling a bit like a failure, Perhaps you've been building a business and had a flop or two, or you're trying to become a bit more disciplined in your life, or trying to do better in a relationship. Perhaps you didn't do as well as you wanted in school, or life is just throwing you a curveball. Whatever it is, remember, you can survive life's vicissitudes. In a literary sense, vicissitudes means the contrast, the fluctuations or alternating between the good and bad circumstances that typically come our way in life. So today, don't let these few minutes here on this podcast pass without opening your eyes to the fact that you can prevail. You can do what you set out to do. And life's journey does ebb and flow. Like the tide moves in and out to the sea, so will life turn again in your favor. So don't quit. Don't let the flop of the moment keep you from stepping up and trying again. Stand in your place, wherever you are, and know that you can and will rise. And you can do what you are trying to do. Keep trying. There is hope and happiness and healing just beyond the distance in which the light of your vision shines today. As one great author said, God expects you to have enough faith and determination and enough trust in Him to keep moving, keep living, keep trying. In fact, He expects you not simply to face the future, He expects you to embrace and shape the future, to love it and rejoice in it and delight in your opportunities. God is anxiously waiting for the chance to answer your prayers and fulfill your dreams, just as He always has. But He can't if you don't pray, and He can't if you don't dream. In short, he can't if you don't believe. So keep believing. Your current flops can enable the highest jumps of all. And you know what occurs to me? When we flop, it gives us a gift. The gift is we can see and relate to others in ways that we couldn't before. Just a few weeks ago, the best golfers in the world traveled to the Open Championship at the Old Course at St. Andrews. Located on the east coast of Fife in Scotland, it is known as the home of golf because it was there that golf was first played in the early 15th century. To win at the Open, particularly when it's played at St. Andrews, is one of the most prestigious honors a professional golfer could have. Jack Nicholas won at St. Andrews twice in 1970 and 78. And by the year 2000, The chatter in the golf world was ablaze with discussion and wonderings about a newcomer called Tiger Woods. Now, Woods came to Scotland in the year 2000, having just won the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. And if he won at St. Andrews, he would be in position to be the youngest golfer ever 
to complete the career grand slam of winning the U.S. Open, the British Open, the Masters, and the PGA Championship in the same calendar years. Well, Woods was only 24 years old, and there was a lot of attention on the line as he arrived at St. Andrews. There to compete were many of the greats in golf, Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, Ernie Els, Tom Watson, Fred Couples, and more. At most professional tournaments, the golfers invited are paired randomly and golf in an open format for the first two days of the tournament. At the end of the first two days, while there are a lot of variations, generally the top 70 golfers are the ones allowed to continue for the subsequent two days. So the tournament begins with 156 players in the field, but after two days that is reduced to 70 players who will compete in the final two days. And the best players in the world at tournaments rarely missed the cut. Well, in the year 2000, Tiger was on a tear. And after the first two rounds, he was 11 under par, an amazing score for the windy, bunker-laden course at St. Andrews. And he was three strokes ahead of the next golfer. But failing to make the cut that day was Jack Nicholas. It was Jack's last year to play all four majors. And it would have made quite a story to see him compete among the leaders, but instead, he failed to make it to even the top 70. And it was obvious that while he had the spirit of a champion, Mother Nature, his age, was in control and he just couldn't do what he used to do. Well, that weekend, the young Tiger Woods stepped into the void left by Nicholas and won the tournament by an incredible eight strokes over the nearest competitor. His golf shots were so accurate, he didn't hit a bunker the entire weekend. And he would go on to win at St. Andrews again in 2005. And he would go on in his career to win 15 major tournaments and an incredible 82 tour victories. Now, fast forward to a few weeks ago. Tiger Woods was at St. Andrews for the Open. Now, Tiger has had some failings and flops in the last few years, if you will. And fans everywhere can somehow relate to a few of those flops and flaws. In 2019, at the age of 43, Tiger came back after back surgery and other injuries to win the Masters. (laughs) It was a historic event, and the crowds were enthralled the entire weekend. So a few weeks ago, when Tiger teed off at the first hole of St. Andrews, the world was hopeful to see a 46-year-old compete for the crown. Well, at tournaments, the crowds follow Tiger, and there just seems to be a magnetism about him that draws the attention. Plus, because he's a 46-year-old underdog, everyone seems to root for and follow him. Well, he started the tournament with a disastrous round on the first day, hitting 78. He needed 66 on the second day just to make the cut, and he didn't even come close. As he approached the 18th green, the last hole, that he would golf at the tournament, it started to sink in that he might never golf in the Open at St. Andrews again. Next time the Open would be held there will be in eight years, and he's not likely to be able to compete eight years from now. So, As Tiger walked up to the 18th green, he was teary-eyed and emotional. He looked over to the adjacent fairway, the first hole at St. Andrews, and there he saw Rory McIlroy, a young Irish professional, filling the void behind Tiger's departure. And Rory looked at Tiger, knowing Tiger was not making the cut and understanding what it meant. Rory grabbed the brim of his hat and tipped his hat slightly in Wood's direction. Behind Rory at the first tee was Justin Thomas, another young winning professional. Justin tipped his hat, and on it went. 
Tiger, perhaps more than at any time we've seen him, was moved by the kindness of his fellow younger golfers. He'd been there, and now he stood where Jack Nicholas stood years before, and most of us could, again, relate to Tiger. And the truth is that for all of us in life, things we used to do with ease get a little harder. Expectations we have aren't always met like we wish they would. Life will take from us things we used to take for granted, and getting old isn't for sissies. And I know some of you on this podcast, along with me, can relate to this story. Life ebbs and flows. But we get a chance now and then to tip our hat to those who are facing a flop in life. We get to experience the fact that we don't always win, and it's okay. And we aren't always the star, and it's okay. And we can live happily in the ebbs and flows that life has in store for us. Now, this leads us back to J.K. Rowling. Here is her second principle of life that she told the students at Harvard. She said, Unlike any other creature on this planet, human beings can learn and understand without having experienced. They can think themselves into other people's places. This is an incredible power that you and I possess to learn from what other people have experienced. We can imagine what it's like to be them, and we can project ourselves into the lives and circumstances other than our own. Now, Rowling notes that there are essentially two ways to live. The first is to remain comfortably within the bounds of your own experience, never troubling to wonder how it would feel to have been born other than who you are. And this limited way of living can implode on itself, narrowing our view to our own way of thinking and to our own way of viewing. And soon, this way of living can bring its own demons because we can only see the four walls in which we currently live. But the second way to live is to lift our eyes from the road that we're on to see the faces of others traveling the same path and to imagine their thinking and their living, to imagine, to see the beauty on the roadside, the flowers in the fields of life and the diversity of God's creations. To open your eyes is to imagine yourself differently, to imagine what it's like to be in another's shoes and to imagine you at new heights. This is where Dick Fosbury comes back to this lesson. You see, without Dick and his imagination and his pursuit of reinventing the flop, Dwight Stone and Javier Sotomayor would likely not have the records they do. You see, when we strive to do something a bit better or even remarkably well, we impact others more than we think. Let's just say you're currently attempting to grow your business and what you imagine and invent and discover will bless more than you. It will bless your team and others after them. And as you strive to be the best parent possible, you will impact generations to come as your kids pick up your traits and follow your lead. As you seek to overcome that habit, it will strengthen you and enable you and free you up to do things that are currently unimaginable. The power of imagining and seeing things from another's view is endless. Now, J.K. Rowling ended her message at Harvard by saying, we do not need magic to transform our world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. So, when you're in the middle of a flop, let your imagination come to your aid. You can see a different future, a better reaction, understand how other people feel, 
and what you can do to be of help to them. Now, if you look to Hollywood, there have been several flops just in the last few years. Wonder Woman 1984, the second film in the Wonder Woman series, lost $143 million. The movie A Wrinkle in Time, based on the famous book, lost $141 million. Spielberg's rendition of The West Side Story lost $104 million. Jungle Cruise lost $151 million. Even the last James Bond movie lost $139 million. But here's the point. DC Comics may have flopped on Wonder Woman 1984, but they made $1.2 billion on Aquaman. Spielberg is worth $7.5 billion from his movie efforts. Disney has more hits and money than we could probably count. And the James Bond franchise has made $7 billion. So flops are part of the business, and flops are part of your business as well. Not everything you and I do will be magically fantastic, but let the flops inspire you. As the famous saying goes, you write a hit the same way you write a flop. So keep on writing because it's never too late to be who you might have been. You know, Rosalind Russell was the comic lead in several movies in the 1930s and 40s. She won five Golden Globe Awards and was on the cover of Time magazine. And she famously said, flops are a part of life's menu, and I've never been a girl to miss out on any of the courses. The trick is to keep imagining and trying while life's flops are happening. Van Gogh once said, the fishermen know that the sea is dangerous and the storm terrible, but they have never found these dangers sufficient reason for remaining ashore. So, let flops teach you, but keep your imagination bright. You know, Brian was born in Liverpool, England, and spent much of his youth in boarding school. Later, he dropped out of the Academy of Dramatic Arts. And finally, after several flops early in life, his father put him in charge of the record department of the family's department store. He would later say his failures put him in the music store and his imagination would later put him on top of the music world. As Brian managed the store, he fell in love with everything having to do with music and record production. He was enthralled with the music business and soon knew most of the comings and goings of the local music scene. There he started to imagine he could be part of the music business. He noticed a band on a few posters hanging around Liverpool. So while working at a news station part-time doing a music column, one day someone came in asking for the band's single. So Brian decided to go to the Cavern Club in downtown Liverpool to give the band a listen. And when he saw them, he started to imagine what they could become. He imagined that he could become a manager in the music business and he would start with them. I was immediately struck by their music, their beat and their sense of humor on stage, he said. And even afterward, when I met them, I was struck again by their personal charm, and it was there that it all started. Well, he talked with the band into signing with him, even though he had no management experience. He was a neophyte in the world of talent management, and he made several mistakes along the way. He missed opportunities and said the wrong thing at times. But for the next seven months, Brian went knocking on doors in London, playing a demo tape for anyone or any recording company that would listen. They all turned him down. They said, the band's sound is just too different. Well, Brian had no experience, 
but he started to learn from his mistakes, and soon his group, the Beatles, had a contract. They recorded two singles, and the two singles immediately started to rise on the charts. The Beatles signed a five-year contract with Brian. Brian earned up to 25% of the band's revenue. While Brian continued to approach record companies in London, most turned him down, but he was persistent enough to get a contract. And soon, the Beatles became a worldwide phenomenon. Here's my point. It was Brian's flops in life that led him to his dad's music store, which led to music management, which led to the Beatles, which led to changing the rest of his life. And I wonder if when Brian dropped out of school and went back home to his dad's record shop, if his imagination one day spoke to him and said, you can be one of the greatest talent managers in the history of rock and roll. And what about you? Wherever you are standing, after a flop or two in life, imagine what lies in store for you if you let flops be flops and decide to rise. So whatever flops may be present in your life today, use your imagination to see a way through them. And when others flop, tip your hat. Learn from their experience and give all the grace you can. Remember, imagining means that you can think yourself into other people's places, situations, and conditions. Imagination is the power to transport you into their reality and the power to lift you and them into new and greater heights. Like Brian, there just might be a Beatles band waiting for you to come along and use your imagination. Well, most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. Music